you will go home this Sunday, taking that song that we have just introduced to you, meditate on its words, because the words of this song comprise so beautifully the major themes of what we've been talking about last week in John 14, what we'll talk about today in John 15, what we'll talk about next week in John 16, and then two weeks from now in John 17. This song is just a beautiful, beautiful summary of the main themes of the next three Sundays. And that's why we are introducing to you today as, as, as a song we want to sing. I want to remind you again the, the words of the first stanza. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith and unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruit of His presence here among us. That's the fruit of God's presence here among us. And this morning, the title of my sermon is Fruitfulness, a picture of our union with Christ. Let me ask you the following question this morning. How do others know you are a disciple of Jesus? How do others know if you are a disciple of Jesus? If you belong to Christ this morning, do others know that about you in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Now, for those of you who are visiting us this morning, we're so glad that you are here. If you do not belong to Christ, we welcome you. We are glad that you're here. There's no other place we would rather have you be than here, among God's people. But how would you, a visitor who may not know Christ or belong to Christ, how would you know if we, this gathering, truly belongs to Christ? Is it just by our words? Is it just that we sing certain songs and we do certain things every Sunday morning? And how can we know if others belong to Christ? How can we, all of us, any of us, Christian or not, how can we know if others belong to Christ? Now, there are some Christians who think that it's not our business to know. Sadly. Have you heard people say that? It's not my business to know. Well, friend, Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, by their fruits, you will know them. He also said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. Jesus applies this law of nature to our spirituality to tell us that, yes, we can know if someone belongs to Christ. Now, we do not see what we're made of on the inside. That's true. But we do not see what we're made on the inside until we see the fruit of what our hearts produce. We're always producing something, either good or bad, either in accordance with God's Word or against it, either fruits of repentance or fruits of rebellion 
either fruits of our union with Christ or fruits of our independence from God. Whether you realize it or not, you always produce some sort of fruit, good or bad. When we look at how Scripture uses the idea of fruitfulness as a picture of our spirituality, there's only two categories. Either you have good fruit, which is a picture of a real connection to Christ, or everything else. Bad fruit, or simply lack of fruit. Now, here's a surprising fact about our spiritual fruitfulness. Lack of fruit is just as bad as having bad fruit. Let me say that again. When it comes to the spiritual view of fruitfulness, lack of fruit is just as bad as having bad fruit. You'll say, where do I get that from? Well, Jesus, one time he was walking to Jerusalem, actually was on his last journey to Jerusalem, and he passed by a fig tree, and he saw that fig tree having no fruit. And Jesus cursed it. And the next day, it was completely withered. Now, in hindsight, that fruitless fig tree proved to be a visible portrait of the very city Jesus walked to. Jerusalem was fruitless. Israel was fruitless. It was a picture of its spiritual bankruptcy. Here's the point. You either have good fruit or you don't. John's gospel, fruitfulness, is not a picture of our spiritual maturity as we are typically inclined to think from other passages in the Bible. In John's gospel, fruitfulness is not a picture of our spiritual maturity or a picture of serious Christians. You know, serious Christians, how do you know if a Christian is really serious? Well, he'll go to CBF or CBS. You know, he'll do some extra things. He'll really take God's Word seriously. You know, those are serious Christians. And fruitfulness shows up in their lives. In John's Gospel, dear friends, fruitfulness is a little more simple than that. Fruitfulness is simply a picture of being a true Christian. Fruitfulness proves our discipleship to Christ. It's a picture of our union with Christ. Fruitfulness makes visible our following of Jesus. That's why the title this morning of our sermon is Fruitfulness, a Picture of Our Union with Christ. Where do we get this from? From John chapter 15. Would you open Scripture to John chapter 15? For those of you who are visiting us this morning and perhaps you're not used to uh, using a Bible, we encourage you to find a Bible in the, in the pew in front of you. You may find our passage on page number 937. Um, for those of you not used to reading a Bible, the big letters or the big numbers are chapters. The small numbers are verses. They help us to get along and, and read along together. So let's read John chapter 15. The word of the Lord this morning to our hearts is the following. I am the vine. I am the true vine. And my father is a gardener. He cuts, every, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. 
you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the, to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you in this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, you will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's go to him and ask him to give us his spirit so that we may understand it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we recognize that this word we have just heard we're not able to understand or apply to our lives unless your Holy Spirit works in us. 
we ask for your Holy Spirit in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen. Friends, if you've been in church for a long time and you've read through the Gospel of John before, you know that chapter 15 is, is that famous chapter with that famous imagery of Jesus and his disciples portrayed as a vine and its branches. But I want to repeat to you what I said before we read the passage. This text can be misapplied or misinterpreted when we think that gospel fruitfulness is just about our spiritual maturity. In John, it's not. In John, fruitfulness is simply about being Christians. Can we get that clear? Do you get that? Do nod your heads if you get that. Fruitfulness is just simply about being Christians, not about sanctification. Now, most readers of the Bible also may forget the context when Jesus gave this teaching. Remember, it was the night on which he was betrayed, right after the supper. Actually, it was right after Jesus had told his disciples about his departure to the Father. It was when their hearts were deeply troubled by the news that Jesus was leaving them. On that night, after that news, Jesus commanded them to remain in Him. On first insight, it sounds like a misplaced commandment. After all, He is the one leaving them. Why are the disciples commanded to remain in Jesus? And, and He's leaving them. Because even though He was leaving back to the Father, He had chosen these disciples to go and bear fruit. Their relationship to Christ was going to bear much fruit even after his, his departure. His relationship to his disciples will bear much fruit even after his departure. And this truth was supposed to comfort them. This truth was supposed to give them assurance and peace and joy. But these disciples needed to know some things about the dynamics of the fruitfulness Jesus promised. So let's look at how Jesus speaks about fruitfulness. We'll look at three things. The first reality, the first point, if you like to take notes. By the way, I'll have to tell you from the beginning, these points are not very, they're not very clear points. They're not very catchy points. They're just there. But they faithfully represent what Jesus intends to say. You know, there, sometimes I'm able to give you some nice points that are very memorable. Today, they're not. but it's a truth. So write them down. Here's the first point. The true vine is finally here. The true vine is finally here. Jesus begins by saying in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, why is this imagery important? Why is Jesus applying this imagery to himself? It's not just to help them with their imagination and their remembrance. See, throughout the Old Testament, God described Israel as a vine. Remember what T.J. wrote, uh, read in, in, in Psalm 80? That God took out a vine out of Egypt. Uh, 
yet what is surprising is that the fact that whenever this imagery of a vine is referred to Israel, every time that is happening, what is emphasized was the vine's failure to produce good fruit. Let me give you just one example of the many. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, God says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad ones? That was the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Now when Jesus comes and gives us the last I am statement, which this is the last I am statement in the Gospel of John, I am the true vine, he's taking over the imagery given to Israel and applying it to himself. Now this is huge. He is what Israel pointed to. But unlike Israel, in him every branch will be fruitful. This true vine will have no unfruitful branches on it. You know why? Because the gardener won't let them stick around. That's what the passage tells us. His father is a gardener who cuts off every unfruitful branch so that the vine has only fruitful branches. The gardener cutting the branches refers not to the judgment at the end of the age. This is an imagery of the true vine in the present, in the real time. The reason why the father cuts off every branch that bears no fruit is so that fruitless branches would no longer be associated with a true vine. Fruitless branches give the wrong picture about the vine. And that's what Israel has done all along. But now, here's the great promise. When the true vine comes, in Christ there will be no more fruitless branches. That's huge. Otherwise, fruitless branches would call into question the credentials of the true vine. We would have reasons to say, well, how is a true vine better than the old vine? The answer is, the gardener is cutting away every fruitless branch. Friends, do we understand that the gardener's first action in this imagery, in this passage, is to disassociate fruitless branches from the true vine? Do you get that? The point is that fruitfulness is an inevitable mark of being in the true vine. Fruitfulness is a true mark of being in union with Christ. Fruitfulness is the litmus test of being a Christian. That's why when someone claims to be a follower of Christ, we should expect to see some fruit of that. No matter how small, we should expect to see some fruit of that. Our union with Christ produces fruit. And it's not just the gardener is removing unfruitful branches, but he's also pruning every fruitful branch so that there would be even more fruit. Why? Because that's what characterizes a true vine. You know, the true vine, when you picture it, it's not like, it's not like a vine 
that has been through a season of drought, you know, barely having two or three, you know, fruits, enough to show, hey, I got some fruit. This true vine that represents Christ is weighty with fruit. It's full of fruit. The, br- the branches produce all kinds of fruit. That shows the kind of fruitfulness this true vine produces. Because the branches of the true vine are called to produce much fruit. Friends, when our eternal Father prunes our lives, how do we respond to it? Do we accept the truth that the gardener's aim is not to keep the branches intact, as we would like, but to make them even more fruitful, as He likes? God's purpose is not to make us happy. God's purpose is to make us holy. So He prunes us for that purpose. He increases our fruitfulness. That's what the gardener is doing in this imagery of the true vine. He's either cutting off or pruning. Now, whatever is not producing good fruit in us can become a hindrance to our fruitfulness. So we should not be surprised when the Father is pruning it away in our lives. But also we should not be upset when He's pruning because we should know that His desire is to see His vine more and more fruitful. So the first point of this description of the, of the vine is, and the gardener is to tell us a picture of the true vine. It's fruitful. It's going to bring much fruit. The age of the unfruitful vine is over. It has been replaced with Jesus. Now that Christ has come, He is the true vine, and those who belong to Him will not fail in producing fruit. Friends, that is great news. But how will that take place? How will that take place? Point number two, the task of remaining in Christ. Verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Verse 9, Jesus modified this phrase saying, remain in my love. These two ideas of remaining in Jesus or remaining in His love are repeated seven times in this chapter. Look with me. I'm going to walk you through these. Look with me. Verse 4, the first one. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Then at the end of that verse, the phrase is repeated again. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Then look at verse 5. If a man remains in me. And look at verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. And move to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. Look at verse 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. What do you think is the main point of this chapter? God could have not made it more clear for us. This idea of remaining in Christ or in His love is a main point Jesus is trying to hammer down and and tell His disciples the night before He goes away. He's departing. 
he's leaving back to the Father. Their hearts are troubled. And the command Jesus gives them is, I know I'm going away, but remain in me, and I will remain in you. Our union with Christ is not just a gift we receive by faith when we repent of our sins and turn to Christ, but our union with Christ is also a task we're called to maintain. Why? Because our fruitfulness is dependent upon an ongoing relationship with Christ. Jesus says in verse 4, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And the point is driven home in most explicit way in verse 5, when Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, these words strip off any confidence in our own spiritual abilities. When we think about Slogans our world teaches us, like fulfilling your potential or being all you can be or the best man ever or the best me ever. When we, bring, when we think about these slogans and try to think our spirituality, these slogans are a lie. <laughs> we don't have any potential. That's what these words are saying. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is a picture of our total spiritual bankruptcy. We cannot produce a fruit God desires on our own. Israel tried, but it failed. For those of you who do not belong to Christ, the first truth God reveals about ourselves, about yourself, is that you cannot produce what God requires of your life, even if you want to. You are bankrupt. Friends, unless we realize our lack of ability for producing good fruit, we will feel no need to cling to Christ. Now, if you are a Christ follower, do you remind yourself of your spiritual inabilities? When you pray, for instance, think of your prayer life. When you pray, do you acknowledge that your human nature still cannot produce what God requires, even though you've been a Christian for a long time? Do you realize that, Christian? That even though you may have been a Baptist for 50 years, your nature, your flesh, your human nature cannot produce what God desires. So, friends, one of the helpful things we can do for our daily spiritual lives and walks with Christ is to remind ourselves daily that we depend on Him for being fruitful. And we must go back to this task of remaining in Christ so that through that, by that, our fruitfulness will grow because it comes from Him. And what does it mean to remain in Christ? We realize our our lack of resourcefulness, we can't do it by ourselves. We don't have it in us to be fruitful. What does it mean to remain in Christ? This text gives us two important clues to remain in Christ. In verse 7 is the first one. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. This tells us that remaining in Christ means holding on to the words of Christ. This means plain and simple, picking up this book, 
more than once a month. Picking it up daily and reading it. When was the last time that your heart said, you know what, I just want to go and read the Bible? And I'm not just reading two or three chapters to check off my, my thing. I'm, I just want to go and read the Bible. Remain in Him, meaning let His words remain in you. Read it, study it, even memorize it. Talking about it with our friends and with other Christians. Friends, when you meet, for instance, let me, let's, let's make it even more actual. When you meet with other people, friends, Christians, it could be members of this church or other Christian friends you have, um, do you ever bring up God's Word in your conversation? If it's over coffee, over lunch, when you catch up with someone on the phone, do you, do you, do you like to bring up God's Word? It might be in, a, in an encouragement. It might be when you counsel. It might be when you even have to rebuke. Do you like bringing up God's Word? Remaining in Christ, meaning let His Word remain in us. Let that Word remain in our conversations, in our thoughts. It's, it's quite simple. I mean, it's quite plain. I don't need to tell you what it means in Greek. It just means let His words remain. Think about them. Bring them up in conversations. But then there's a second clue. It's not just knowing the Word and, and bringing it up um, or thinking about it or reading it. There's verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. In other words, it's not just about knowing the words of Jesus, but actually doing them, following them, letting them transform us, letting them guide us in making decisions. In verse 14, Jesus even said that, when, that we are his friends if we do what he commands. So we remain in Christ by obeying his commands. Plain, simple. That's why, dear friends, we should not be, we should not be flippant about disobeying Christ. When someone chooses willingly to disobey Christ, even after being pointed out and counseled, we should become very concerned for that person. Because in choosing to disobey Christ, they are turning their backs to the task of remaining in Him. They may still have the outward appearance of association with Christ. Like Judas Iscariot had. But organically, the task of remaining in Him has been broken. That union with Christ, which is displayed by keeping His commands, has been bruised. It has taken a hit. And one of the commands repeated most often in these chapters is the command to love one another. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And this is, is brought out in, these, in this section of John as a chorus almost. Since this command is repeated so many times, the task of remaining in Christ is closely tied to how we love other Christians. When we remember that Jesus commanded us to remain in His love, this makes it clear that remaining in Christ is done not just by holding on to His word and His commands, but also by replicating His love for us in our relationships with one another. In other words, our remaining in Christ is not simply an individualistic experience. It's not about just me and Jesus. That idea is completely thrown out the window. Remaining in Christ 
is lived out in community with other Christ followers. Do we see that? That's why Jesus says, remain in me or remain in my love. Well, his love was given for us. And he says, love each other as I have loved you. So if we think that we are close to Christ, but we struggle to be committed to other Christians and to love them, friends, that's a red flag to question our true connection to Christ. If we think that we're committed to Christ, we're connected to Christ, but we struggle with our love and commitment to other Christians, that should be a red flag of the quality of our connection with Christ. So our active pursuit of His Word, our active obedience of His commands, and our commitment to a community of loving relationships is critical to our task of remaining Christ and His love. There is no fruit and no fruitfulness apart from this connection. But what is the fruit? We looked at the true vine that is inevitably fruitful. We looked at the task of remaining in Christ. But what is the fruit? When we look at the elements in the imagery Jesus gives, the fruit is the only element that is not defined by Jesus. We know who the vine is. We know who the gardener is. We know who the branches are. But when it comes to fruit, it's blank. You know why? Because the fruit is everything that the Word produces in us when we keep it. In a very general sense, the fruit is a transformation which the Word of God causes in us when we hold on to it. Remember how Jesus described himself, or how John described Jesus in the beginning of this gospel? In the beginning was the Word. One of the best commentaries to understand what fruitfulness is, one of the best insights to understand what fruitfulness is in this passage, is to go back to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Notice if you know these verses. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So what's the fruit? Everything God purposes. Everything God desires to achieve through His Word. That's the fruit. And this is a powerful assurance of the fruitfulness of God's Word. And when you couple that, from the word from Isaiah, where John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, we understand why Jesus speaks so confidently that those who are in Him will bear fruit. It's inevitable that they will not, that they will. Friends, these verses leave it open what ended, what that fruit is. It's everything that God intends to produce in us. It's everything God intends to produce in us through His Word. And yet, Jesus also gives us some examples of fruit in this, in this, in this chapter. Uh, for instance, in verse 7, we are told that an example of that fruitfulness shows up in our prayer life. We will be people of prayer, and God will answer our prayers. Our prayers will be active, and they will be effective. Fruitfulness shows up in our prayer lives. Also, verse 11, 
our fruitfulness will show up in the experience of joy. Look at verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, this is quite surprising. Remember, Jesus said all this in the night before he was, before he was crucified, the night he was betrayed. How amazing that even then, what preoccupied Jesus was to ensure that he gives us his joy. He wanted to make sure that we know of his joy and that he gives it to us. Now, a note about the joy of Jesus. It was a joy wrapped around obeying his Father's commands as an expression of his love for the Father. This kind of joy, his joy, he wants to give to his disciples. This means that the joy Jesus gives is not a separate package from his obedience. Do you have the joy of obeying the Lord? Does obeying the Lord bring you joy? Right before the service this morning, one of, one of the members of our congregation came to me and, and told me of how joyful he was, and I could see the joy in his heart, that he had gone through some pretty major temptation this past weekend, but he, he overcame it in a way that he never thought would have, would have been possible months ago. And there was just joy in the, in the, in the heart, in the face of this, of this person, the joy of obeying the Lord. Do you know that joy? God, Jesus, wants to give us the joy that is His, the joy that was displayed through Him obeying the Father, even to the point of death. The joy Jesus promised to give us is a package called remain in Him, follow His commands, be willing to pick up your cross, die to yourself, follow Him, then you will experience this joy. Now, these are just examples of actual real fruit that Christ produces in us. There's a few characteristics of, of the kind of fruitfulness that we will see in this vine. This fruitfulness is aimed at bringing glory to the Father. Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. In other words, fruitfulness doesn't reflect well just on the vine. It reflects back to the gardener, to the Father. It brings glory to the Father. Another characteristic is that this fruit that Christ produces in us is a proof of our discipleship to Him. Verse 8, again, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. These, this fruitfulness makes visible our connection to Christ. And the last characteristic about this fruit is that this fruit, which Christ produces in us, will last. Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. By implication, this means that whatever fruit does not last is not produced by Him. That's why when we see people turn away from the Lord or give up on following His Word, we have good reasons to question if their union with Christ has been true in the first place. Was it only an outward association with the vine, but no real connection? The last characteristic given here about the fruit Christ produces in us is that it will last. What a promise. What an assurance. We don't have to worry. What Christ produces in us will last, and yet we're given the task to remain in Him. We've looked at the true vine and its inevitable fruitfulness. We looked at our task of remaining in Christ. We looked at the fruitfulness of remaining in Christ. All this sounds great. But at the conclusion of chapter 16, 
Jesus turns to one side effect of this fruitfulness, which may come to us as a surprise. Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for it. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Here's the point. Not everyone will be happy with our fruitfulness in Christ. The gardener is going to cut off every unfruitful branch in the vine. And he's going to prune every branch in the vine that bears fruit so that branch will bear more fruit. But the world will hate the fruitfulness of this vine. And they will reject it. Why? Because in, remember verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, Christ testified that what the world does is evil. So when those who truly belong to Christ bring out the fruit of their belonging to Christ, when that's evident, guess what the world will do? It will hate it. Friends, the world looks at this true vine that has lots of fruit, and they hate it. Yet it is this fruitfulness which, will, which the world hates that brings glory to the Father. And Christ has promised the Holy Spirit, which will continue to testify about Christ, and He will enable us to do the same, regardless of the cost. I uh, was reminded this weekend of the story that goes about Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor in the 19th century in London. He was walking down the street one day when a man was, who was drunk and leaning on a lamppost yelled out to him. And he said, hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon said, no, why would I? And he said, because I'm one of your converts. Spurgeon's response, well, you must be one of mine. You certainly are not the Lord's. It's a way Spurgeon speaks, right? Friends, those who truly belong to Christ will bear fruit. Remain in Christ. Christ will produce much fruit in your life, thus proving your discipleship to Him and bringing glory to the Father. Let us pray. Father, we...